You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 405. I'm your host, Andreas Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Aniko Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey son, hey son! How are you guys? Ready for another episode? No. Yes, yeah. we are! Very good, very good, Just very good. back from Singapore. Ooh, so you were actually on yeah. civilized time zone. Not, I shouldn't say civilized. <laughs> <laughs> very but, colonial of you. <laughs> well, yes, of course, well, everything centers around me. <laughs> so how was it, Singapore? Singapore is amazing. Singapore is a place that, that, that really looks like... a place out of a sci-fi movie it's ridiculously clean it's um <laughs> everything is so modern and different cultures live happily next to each other it's amazing well probably not the country that can boast the highest level of um societal freedoms but well <laughs> yeah i mean democracy is overrated isn't it anyway I mean, they they are they have a parliament and they have <laughs> elections, but I know it's a bit, uh, it's not exactly a full fledged yeah. democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's um, a very prosperous country. And did you know that the prime minister of Singapore is the highest paid official in the world? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> I mean, country official. It's a new job to aspire to have. Then, yes, less two point two million. Singapore dollars is what he makes a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. So it's like, wow. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's the <laughs> highest, highest paid head of government in the world. Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. a teeny tiny country. Yeah. Oh, right. by the way, I'm, I'm going back there to Malaysia and Singapore between the 1st and 12th of December. I'll be somewhere around the area. So if someone listening to this is also from the area or is currently there, Please drop us a line because I'd like to meet meet up with you. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you don't even have to so be head of state great. of any country. You can just no, no, <laughs> say hello. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can just say hello. It would be amazing to meet up with listeners of the show in places like Singapore or Malaysia, because we we know that there are people listening to us from all over the world. So it's amazing. Mm, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I've I've done some a little bit of traveling myself. Not, oh, not yeah? as uh, exotic as you have. <laughs> I went to Stockholm the, the last weekend and had a meeting with the Swedish skeptics, the, the board of the Swedish skeptics, I should say. And it's always great to meet face to face. We usually have Zoom calls, of course, because it's cheaper and it's easier and we are based all over the country. But a couple of times a year, we, we try to catch up in person. And it was lovely, of course. We started to discuss... I can't mention any details, but we started to discuss who is going to uh, receive the uh, Enlightener of the Year Award for this year. And also, of course, the Confounder of the Year Award uh, that will be announced early January. And it's not decided yet, but we started uh, the initial discussions. Always lovely to meet up with my friends there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you been to Cologne Skeptics, Annika, recently? Um. I haven't, but I watched it in the live stream. <laughs> ah, okay. Is it a weekly event or a monthly event? Um, it's not even a monthly. It's, um, I would say, roughly one and a half months to two months. 
Uh, um, okay, so whenever there's something to say or someone, no, someone the, who we can do say have, something, we do have yeah. a rhythm, but it's it's not it's not strictly every four weeks. <laughs> uh, okay. But yeah, the next one will be uh, very close to Christmas on the 20th of December about skeptical advent and what do we actually know about Christmas and its traditions by Mm -hmm. Dr. Claudia Price. So that will be really, Mm -hmm. really cool. And I'll try to be there. Uh, It's really hard to be there with a toddler. It starts at 7.30 and it's not even in my my city. (laughs) So uh, that's why it's sometimes hard to get there. But um, yeah, if you can't get there, if if you're a mom like me, then um, there's also the live stream that you can watch that's always happening. And uh, you can, of course, also support Skeptics in the Pub and you can also support this podcast. (laughs) Oh, you can? Yes, you can. Great. (laughs) How? Yes, you go to patreon.com slash the ESP. And there are all the instructions there. I don't need to repeat it. But basically, you could support us with a little something for every episode we we release. And you can put a, a cap on it as well. So you don't so we don't steal all your money. Uh, we, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> we but... don't steal any of your money. You're, you're giving it away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Voluntarily. Your own free will. <laughs> voluntarily. <laughs> And we really appreciate you doing so. Yeah, so do um, everyone who is supporting us uh, currently, we are eternally grateful for your help mm-hmm. and uh, for, for making this possible to happen. Yes. And uh, thank you. But so let's do the show that uh, people like listening to and people like supporting as well. <laughs> um, so and as usual, we start with uh, This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Twish. And this week, at the beginning of this week, actually, the 20th of November marks the 47th anniversary of the death of someone whom we have talked about on this show, but from a different aspect, and that is Trofim. Okay, I'm going to make an attempt at pronouncing his name. So Trofim Denisovich Lysenko. Ah, uh, sounds was, good to um, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should, of course, have. We should have needed uh, Jelena's help with this one, but uh, well done. Well, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have her on the show anymore. Mm. Yeah, so something along, along those lines uh, when it comes to the pronunciation of the name. So he was born in current-day Ukraine of Ukrainian ethnicity as well, but he became a big name in the science of the Soviet Union. Well, I specifically said he was not a big figure, he was a big name in the science of genetics, although he specifically avoided the name genetics and genes because he was all against whatever Mendel and Morgan came up with, those findings that were forming the basis of current-day genetics. So he was a scientist. He was, um, well, if we can call him that. So-called scientist, yes. Yes, so-called scientist. So he started uh, dealing with agriculture at a very young age. So he did agricultural experiments, and one of them he did in Azerbaijan at the age of 29, so at at a very young age. And he experimented with crops and uh, wheat seeds because the problem with agriculture in cold areas 
the vast majority of which makes up <laughs> the territory of then USSR or the Soviet Union, it makes it almost impossible to grow different kinds of crops. So when it came to spring wheat, it was kind of okay because from spring onwards, over the summer and as and all, it was possible to grow them. But winter wheat, which is in some parts of the world is pretty easy to grow, was caught in the cold weather and so deep frosts that it basically killed all the crops. And um, he decided that by trying to treat the wheat seeds with a bit of moisture and cold, he could turn them into these weird terminator seeds that that could (laughs) uh, withstand the severe weather conditions. And he claimed that these became hereditary traits, these tolerance towards the severe weather. That was basically a Lamarckist kind of idea. And that was already way over in the field of genetics by then. But since he refused to accept the basics of genetics, he could say whatever he wanted. And his new ideas and his new achievements that were, well, probably based on fabricated data in most of the cases, unfortunately, they played very well with the administration, namely that of Josip Stalin. Stalin found that very exciting, that his founds and uh, his results were in accordance with the revolution, and they are very revolutionary, and they will bring prosperity to the Soviet Union. So, he was made the director of the Institute of Genetics within the Academy of Sciences of the Soviet Union. Without having the right credentials, he became the editor of that, the organization or the institution of the highest acclaim in the country in science. So it's weird in itself. But then he started cleaning up the tables by having people removed by discreditation, marginalization, or having them imprisoned, whoever criticized his works. So that was what was called Lysenkoism in the end. And um, he based his ideas of another Russian agronomist uh, by the name Ivan Michurin, but they were completely wrong when it came to inheritance of acquired characteristics, which is basically Lamarckist. But Lamarck was wrong. By that time, he knew. And unfortunately, his ideas are in a bit of a resurgence at the moment. I don't know if you've heard, but because of recent studies in epigenetic research Mm -hmm. that suggest that some environmentally produced changes can actually be passed from parent generation to the next generation, they think that Lysenko was basically right. But the fact that he's crazy ideas and the support he gave from the administration and that everyone was forced to plant the crops that he had previously treated, um, that treatment didn't do anything really to the crops. So the crops didn't yield any actual produce. And because the central government wanted a certain amount of the produce to be handed in, A lot of people, even farmers, were left without wheat to eat. It ended up killing a lot of people. We are talking about approximately 7 million people who died of hunger, if not a direct result of Lysenkoism, 
but uh, linked to it. And even more people died when the China of Mao Zedong decided to embark on that crazy train and actually doing the same thing. And there are actual estimations as to how many people could have died because of that. And uh, when it comes to the China part of it, we are talking about several dozens of millions of people. Mm. Uh, The highest estimate is about 55 million people. This is what happens when science politicians side with scientists who don't make sense because they are saying the things that they want to hear. So, no, science doesn't work this way. Science is a self-correcting mechanism, a set of mechanisms. And if we want to do it right and we want to benefit from it, we need to do it right. And politicians should just step away and let scientists do their thing and listen to what scientists have to say, but not just one lunatic who makes absolutely no sense. So, yeah, after the death of Stalin, uh, Lysenko got off that very high horse after a while in the late 50s. But uh, even up until his death, he was still promoting his crazy ideas. And that death happened on the 20th of November 1976. Yeah, good riddance. Uh, I mean... (laughs) Well, it's always very dangerous if you mix ideology into what you want science to deliver. Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And if to someone this sounds all familiar is because on episode 234, we talked about Lysenkoism and how it rose to the level that it was the only supported set of scientific ideas regarding genetics and uh, especially agriculture. That's a different aspect if you want to listen to that. But this was specifically about the guy himself, Trofim Denisovich. Lysenko. Okay, speaking of people making very little sense, (laughs) are you going to be talking about the Pope today, Pontus? No, no, (laughs) I think we will skip the Pope today. (laughs) Okay, Pontus doesn't poke the Pope today. Okay, Um, then we're moving on to the news. Yes, and I'm going to talk about EU and EU regulations. They Mm -hmm. are often tricky from a scientific point of view, specifically when it comes to things that uh, sound scary and that the general public are a bit afraid of, like GMO, for instance. The same thing is true about glyphosate. Glyphosate, of course, is a very common herbicide, infamously invented by the dreaded Monsanto once upon a time. And glyphosate is the main ingredient in Roundup, which is also a very well-known herbicide. Monsanto has since been bought by the company Bayer, so Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. But Roundup is still around, and it is associated with a lot of scaremongering. Especially, uh, it has been rumored to be cancerogenic. But it's a little bit different, depending on who you ask. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, they classify glyphosate as, quote, not likely to be carcinogenic to humans, end quote. But the International Agency of Research on Cancer, the IARC, has put it in its so-called Group 2A, which means that they deem it, quote, probably cancerogenic to humans. So who do we believe? Now, the IARC classification has been heavily criticized regarding other substances as well. And for one thing, their classification is based on hazard, not on risk, which is very easily 
confused. In this example, the difference can be said that it's about the dose, the dosage. Something that is hazardous can be almost no risk at all if you keep the dose at the safe level. And even in a huge concentration when it comes to glyphosate, it is still very much doubtful that glyphosate is a cancer risk. So now in Europe, we have a special situation. The European Commission has had a big problem with glyphosate because glyphosate is very much needed in EU and it's much safer than a lot of other herbicides. But political pressure has been high to ban it. The compromise so far has been not to approve it, but to give it an exception. And the last time it got a five-year exception, and that happened, well, five years ago, which means that the exception now is running out in December. Now, the problem is that the EU has not been able to come up with the necessary two-thirds majority to extend the exception. And still, banning it is rather impossible. So the European Commission came to a very extraordinary decision, namely to prolong the exception anyway. So um, when you don't get your member states to vote the way you want them to vote, you take the decision of your own, which is um, very, <laughs> very strange. <laughs> very strange indeed. And of course, this has been... Very democratic. Yeah. So and also, they <laughs> extended the exception for another 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, that, of course, led to a lot of outcry among certain lobby groups. I know Greenpeace was very outraged about this. But the thing is, in all likelihood, glyphosate is not dangerous. And all the pressure to ban it is probably only political or ideological. So um, they did the right thing. I don't know if they did it the right way. Glyphosate can still be used in EU, but it's still up to each state to decide whether to approve it in their country. So I, I don't know all, the, all of these uh, shenanigans. I don't know what it means, really. I <laughs> guess if the European Commission had banned it, then it couldn't be approved by any of the member states. In this case, they leave it to the separate countries to decide whether they want to still use it or not. Yeah, so... That's, that's yeah, how it and is. And we're back to the problem uh, previously mentioned. Yeah. From a scientific point of view, there is an agricultural problem that we need to address and that science has a lot to say about it. But when politicians are not making their decisions based on what science has to say, and I'm pretty sure that science is telling them. So there are those people who are there to convey the message of what science has gathered. Yeah, as an answer to the problem, you just have to make the right decisions, and unfortunately, it's it's not what drives these decisions. No, that's the problem. But to the European Commission's credit, they based their decision on an assessment made by EFSA, so that's another organization, the European Food and Safety Authority, because they mm -hmm. have come to the conclusion that glyphosate is not a danger to the health of humans or, or to animals or even the environment. So the science, I think, is clear. It's very bad that uh, the IARC, again, um, confuses things. We had the same problem not too long ago with uh, the IARC when, it, when they had a ruling on uh, aspartame, which they also put in, in a, the wrong group, as I would say it. They classified that as possibly carcinogenic, which not very many other people agree with. Or people, it's not people, it's scientists that don't agree with that. But yeah. 
they took that decision and, and we had big scare about that. Yeah. And the big scare comes from the communication side of it. So it's a, it becomes a communicational issue. Mm. Even if it's uh, scientifically sound to put something in a certain category, the general public will not understand the depth of it and will not understand the nuance of how and why something gets in there. And it becomes just a scare situation. The general media does that to us as well. They blow this whole thing up. And this is what happened with us aspartame. And then it becomes a pressure to the decision makers to make the decision that is popular. Yeah. Uh, and this is why I don't like it when organizations like Greenpeace are breathing into the ears of decision makers because they are the ones who are the loudest, but they are the ones who make the the least sense among them all. It's It's good to have organizations like that with the ears of the public, but please at least try to make some sense because people are very easily deceived and they are easy to manipulate. So politicians... Yeah, yeah sometimes politicians uh, drive the change and decide on changes by going back. Going back in the way of like going back in time. And I don't mean that they have a TARDIS. Sadly, they don't. Or yeah. maybe it's good that they don't, <laughs> depending on the politician. But uh, I'm talking about nostalgia in politics and how people... Ooh use that to create opinion or create votes, even like influence voters. Nostalgia is, is something that right now is pretty big, I think. And I mean, that not right now in 2023, but right now in the time of the year. Like I even see myself, I'm watching all these 90s Christmas movies because it's just like, yeah, you just, you, it's Christmas. You're just, oh yeah, you're just nostalgic. And, and, <laughs> and I think yeah. I'm not the only one who's, uh, who's doing that. <laughs> Otherwise they wouldn't be, um, so highly ranked on the watching platforms that we have, but be that as it may. Yeah, and, and, and who doesn't have at least one screening at home of Love Actually around Christmas yes, time? Yes, anyway. all these things. So all of us, right? So exactly. Like... And if the listeners could see our faces right now, we were all smiling just before. So you can see nostalgia is emotional. It's close to our hearts. And that's yes. something that politicians use. And I'm not saying they use Home Alone for to, to influence elections. But they are using nostalgia and especially the positive emotions tied to that to uh, create community and also to cover that they don't really have anything else to say. <clears throat> and that um, <laughs> that is, for example, used by um, the Italian far right party. Uh, and I will probably need Andras to pronounce that. I would say probably Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy. Fratelli d'Italia, sì. And their manifesto contains uh, a lot of nostalgic references. For example, and I quote, the national resources and artistic heritage of the nation are inheritance to be guarded and enhanced. So it's just like, yeah, okay, but what, what do you actually want? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's of course drawing people in. It's, it's, um, addressing the, the pride that someone might feel about their country. It's creating community. It's knitting together people. The thing is that people that are very nostalgic want to go back in time. So they're, of course, drawn a bit closer to the conservative side. There was a study done. They analyzed uh, 1,650 election manifestos published by parties across 24 European uh, democracies, and I say democracies, between 1946 and 2018. 
And they found that parties in Central and Eastern Europe and Southern Europe are more nostalgic than those in Northern and Western Europe, which is like I think it's interesting, but it goes on par to like the prejudices I had in my head. <laughs> and the average manifesto in Central and Eastern Europe included 44 nostalgic sentences per thousand sentences, while in Western and Northern Europe it contains fewer than half of that, which is which is all interesting. The leader of that all uh, with uh, 113 nostalgic sentences was Latvia and the All for Latvia party. And the lowest was Ireland with 23 sentences. But France, Belgium, Austria, Netherlands, Germany, UK, they're all pretty, pretty low ranked. The, the diagram that I saw is like ranked by amounts, but also ranked by region. And it's, it pretty much looks like it's ranked by amount anyways, because the region is so close. So there's really a falling scale across the European map. And that's really interesting. Mm. Um, Towards the east, you mean? Yeah. No, towards the west. Yeah. Yes. From because the east the to the west. Yeah, the east. from the east to the yeah, west. from the yes. east to the west. <laughs> what, what's interesting uh, to see is that mostly it's used by conservative parties uh, or nationalist parties even. And it's also imp interesting that people that are most nostalgic usually vote for more extreme parties. That mm -hmm. also tells us that... The more nostalgic you, you make people, the more extreme they might vote. So that's why it's also helping these extreme parties if they're using a lot of nostalgia, especially because, as we said, it can cover the gaps if there are any with like nice tinsel, so to say. It, it will just cover the gaps of manifestos to, to have actual goals, so to say. Hmm. Yeah. And, and very often they create a nostalgic sense for a time that never was. They, yes, they paint exactly. the past as if it was this fantastic. And, you know, if you go back to the 30s or mm -hmm. people were starving, it was a, there, were, there was had they just had a war and there yeah. was a new war coming. There's nothing to be nostalgic about. Yeah. If you go back even further, you, you have the same problem. The problem that was so bad that people emigrated to the US in millions yeah. because they couldn't support themselves yeah. in Europe. Yeah, it's it's like I, I saw these movies or like even this movement of treadwives. They're like, oh yeah, I just want to be go back to where I don't have to worry and, and be completely cared for by my husband. But yeah, if you have that, then you also can't make your own decision as a wife. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's always your a drawback if you go back to make in time. Decisions for you. <laughs> yeah. I must say, I'm yeah. looking at the diagram right now, and I, it confirms my suspicion, of course. The Sweden Democrats that I always go mm -hmm. on about, they're more than twice as bad as any other Northern European mm. party. Yeah. They are almost at the top. Mm -hmm. They're approaching Latvia almost in the way they are nostalgic in what they are saying. And uh, it's all nonsense. You listen to them and you say, what are you talking about? It wasn't better in the past. <laughs> it wasn't better. It was never better. What are you talking about? Yeah. But it's emotional. And, and emotions mm -hmm. sell. Exactly. You, you, people get emotionally invested in this mm -hmm. and then they buy it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And nostalgia is one of those very strong human feelings. And uh, whoever has lost someone has been through divorce or a breakup and felt nostalgic towards the old times together mm -hmm. with that person. It's very basic. It's there because even if it's real, if it was, was real at some point, we tend to remember only the good yeah. things about the past. 
even I have it. It's like I would say I'm I'm still pretty young on the scale of old to young. <laughs> but even I have yeah. it where I'm like, oh yeah, that was so nice in the early 2000s with all of like the the hairstyles and the dressing styles that we had. And then I think back and I'm like, what are you talking about? You were in high school back then. That was yeah. so horrible. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. yeah, but with the manipulation that uh, usually politicians do with trying to appeal to those mm-hmm. emotions, it can be taken further, as Pontus said, towards something, being nostalgic towards something that has never yeah, been. Yeah, exactly. And that is very extreme. And that basically explains why those people very prone to nostalgia Mm -hmm. are more likely to vote to extremist political forces. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But there is the other thing that then politicians make the laws or change the laws Mm -hmm. sometimes based on what people want. The public opinion that has usually been driven by them in the first place. This is why sometimes the rule of law and the force of law is something that you cannot rely on. But other times, there is a very good framework provided by a country's law that can help you. This is why there are organizations, there are institutions that oversee the actions of some professions. One of them in the UK is the General Medical Council. They are responsible for regulating doctors in the country. And whoever is involved in any kind of misconduct and don't really work for the public good, they are being investigated and um, in extreme cases, they get expelled from the General Medical Council's register. Because yes, a medical doctor should not be doing anything that's harmful to the general public, right? We all agree on Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes even the General Medical Council falls short of making sure that these standards are being adhered to. One of these cases is that of Dr. Asim Malhotra. Mm. If the name sounds familiar, yes. is because he was the one who won the 2023 Rusty Razor Award. Yeah. Uh, given a QED for propagating pseudoscientific nonsense and anti-vaccination claims and, well, very weird dietary claims as well. And he's followed by a large audience, like we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people uh, following him and forming their opinions on his so-called medical expertise. This is why it's really sad that the General Medical Council didn't consider the comments and posts made by him to call his fitness to practice into question. Well, I'm pretty sure that we all agree that this should not have been their ruling. They could have dug a bit deeper than that, and they would have found that he's completely unfit to be on the register of the General Medical Council. So a lot of people challenged that ruling, but it has so far been uphold on several occasions. But now there is another medical professional by the name Dr. Matt Neely, And he is taking the General Medical Council to the High Court of the United Kingdom because he wants them to open an investigation into Malhotra's wrongdoings. According to him, and I quote, medical professionals should not be using their professional status to promote harmful misinformation. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) So basic uh, rule, I think. (laughs) Minimum requirement. Yes. And I'd like to quote another thing that he said. 
When doctors repeatedly say things that are incorrect, misleading and put people's health at risk, for example by encouraging them to refuse a vaccine, the GMC must hold them to account. So this is now an ongoing legal case, but unfortunately this is something that costs a lot, so this is quite problematic. But fortunately for everyone, there is an organization in the UK that is called the Good Law Project. They are a not-for-profit campaign organization uh, that uses the law for a better world. So they uh, support cases that are for the general good when they feel that the rule of law and the force of law could help the world in moving forward towards working better. This is why they um, they back him up. They have Matt Neely's back, uh, fortunately, and we'll keep a close eye on what's going on. I think it's a very good cause. So they are also asking for support from the general public. They are the ones giving the actual legal support. But obviously, they need financial support to fund this case. We will, of course, share the link on our show notes, and uh, our listeners can go and help them out with uh, whatever they can spare to do this. So, yes, uh, it's one thing to ridicule Asim Malhotra with things like giving him the uh, Ross Razor Award and pointing out the disinformation campaigns that he's leading. But taking legal action is very important because that is the only way that this, these kind of people can be deplatformed and cannot spread their misinformation and causing a lot of harm. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, guys. Apparently, there's a strange noise in the air. Ooh. Yeah. Is it Santa's jingle bells? It could be Santa. <laughs> I don't know. It could be actually Santa because nobody knows what it is. But there's a report from last week from a town called, I think it's pronounced Oma in uh, Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. about a strange humming noise. And nobody can really tell where it's coming from. Very mysterious. The local district council... Obviously, it's aliens. Uh, probably, yeah. What else? Some have suggested this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The local case closed. (laughs) The local district council has investigated the phenomenon, but so far without any success. People typically characterize it as a quote persistent buzz or hum end quote, distinct Hmm. from more common noises like uh, traffic or things like that. A council spokeswoman said the investigation had been challenging, quote, due to the wide area where the sound has been reported, it is difficult to pinpoint the exact sources, end quote. Uh, She also said officers are currently investigating the use of specialist equipment or procurement of a specialist company to assist in detecting the source of the noise. So they're taking this very seriously. And it's a real problem. Lots of people are having real issues with this. They cannot sleep. It's hard to concentrate. And actually, some people feel physically ill from it. Uh, The interesting Mm. thing is that this is not something entirely new and not specific for this little town in in Northern Ireland. The quote-unquote hum has been reported before. It's a low-frequency humming noise that has been reported from time to time from all over the world, actually. Sometimes it's heard in cities, but more often it's in the countryside at night when there's less background noise. And most complaints seem to be from people aged 50 to 60. So that's, that's me, actually. So I have, I don't, I don't hear anything. So that's not, not, I'm not complaining about this. 
All the way back in the 1970s, there was an international project to try to establish what this phenomenon is. Suggestions have been uh, low-frequency earthquakes, industrial compressors, fans or farm machinery. Others say that it's all in the heads of the people who is reporting it. Maybe there's some low-frequency tinnitus or tinnitus. I don't know. Both pronunciations are okay, I think. Or it could also be something called, quote, spontaneous autoacoustic emissions, S-O-A-E, which I have never heard about before. But it's apparently a thing. It has a Wikipedia page, for one thing, but it's something where there's a sort of auditory hallucination. Some, as you said, Andras, have speculated that it is the sound of low-flying UFOs. Or other mysterious things. I'm sure there are lots of suggestions. So the question is, how can we know what this is? And I think this is a sort of a lesson in skepticism here. The first thing to establish before you explain anything is to make sure that there's actually something there to be explained. I'm not saying that people are lying. I'm sure most people reporting hearing the hum are hearing something, or at least they think that they're hearing something. But for one thing, there is a lot to be said for the power of suggestion. If your friend or your neighbor claims to hear something, then suddenly you may also pick up uh, on things and say, yeah, I think also there, maybe there's something. And then you can have this sort of a public, common, general illusion that, that there's something there. Maybe there's, you know, it could be the wind blowing through power lines, distant traffic maybe, or waves on a distant seashore. I don't know. There's a lot of things. And that's the other point, really. It doesn't have to be one thing. The so-called hum reported from all over the world isn't necessarily one single thing. Many different phenomena can create sounds or even the illusion of sounds. And insisting that there's only one explanation for all of this is uh, likely the wrong approach. It may be hundreds of quite different sources for these reports all over the world. And we, as humans, we just clump them all together and say, well... This is the hum, and it has to be one thing. And uh, the last thing to say about this, it's always important to remember that just because something is unexplained doesn't mean that it has to be unexplainable. So even if there is something and we don't know what it is, it doesn't have to be UFOs or some magic thing. It's probably something, and it's probably many different things, and uh, it can probably be explained even if we haven't done so already. Yeah, there always has to be an explanation. It's just, uh, yeah, it's one of one of those examples when uh, the fact that we don't know for sure is not a good enough reason for us to jump into the conclusion that it's aliens. <laughs> no. Um, all right, thank you very much. And um, I'm eager to find out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and this is an item that I read first and I had to keep myself from crying because it's it's so tragic and it's also very close to my heart because I also have an infant. This is about MMS and a child, an infant accidentally ingesting MMS, Miracle Mineral Supplement, which is anything but miraculous. Mm-hmm. So what happened here is that a 2.5-year-old boy accidentally ingested a 25% sodium chloride solution. This was a solution that had been recommended to his grandfather as a bowel cure by his naturopath. 
And although the little one tried to spit out the solution again, he couldn't or like only partially succeeded because he already swallowed parts of it and vomited diarrhea. Um, and then that wasn't the worst of it. They went to the hospital. He had already gray, pale skin color, lip cyanosis. So like his lips were blue and oh. no surprise. It was because his oxygen saturation was 67%. And just so you know, you should have about 98, 99% saturation yeah. mm. because otherwise you don't have enough oxygen in your body to live. So the child had to be intubated and it showed that he had methamoc. God, uh, <laughs> sorry. Meth, my God. Meth. <laughs> okay. or something like that. That mm -hmm. means that his blood wasn't able to transport oxygen anymore because the hemoglobin in his blood suffered under the MMS that he took in. That's some, like, I, I did a bad job of explaining that. Um, if we would invite a, <laughs> a medical a doctor here, then they, they would could probably explain that a bit better. But they treated him with methylene blue and ascorbic acid and also gave him erythrocyte concentrate, so like blood transfusions. And then they also checked his esophagus and his stomach the next day and they saw that the mucus covering the stomach was completely covered with bloody erosion. So it was lucky that the, the stomach didn't rupture, basically. They then discovered that he also had aspiration pneumonia, so his lungs were also affected, had to take antibiotics uh, for five days, and then because it was such a young child, um, he could heal up and was discharged after a few days, or after, after a week probably. They say five days antibiotics and then got discharged subsequently. So yeah, the really wrong is, of course, not for the child, And I wouldn't even say for the grandfather. At, at worst, he was negligent, um, that he left that standing around. But also he thought it was, it was medication. Of course, medication should also not be in the hands of any infant because that can also have very tragic consequences. But he couldn't know that it would be so bad. I would actually say that the naturopath is more to blame here because he, gave it as a bowel cure to the grandfather. Mm -hmm. So for enabling an infant to accidentally ingest MMS, naturopaths who sell that and negligent grandparents receive this week's prize for being really wrong. Yeah, mm. uh, it, it, it's terrible. It's really, really very dangerous uh, and it has no medical No, use at no, all no, no. but it's no. sold anyway no, it doesn't come with a benefit at all no there's no, no benefit all risk and no benefit it's been yeah. likened to uh, industrial bleach that's what it is it's, yes it's not exactly. something you should put in anybody's body and i'm i'm sure that the grandfather is happy he didn't use it yeah <laughs> yeah well thank you very much for that anika thank you and Let's finish on something a bit more lighthearted. So yes, yes, I'm curious to find out what the word of the week might be. Yes, I have no less than two words, actually, but they are related. And I won't mm. even tell you what uh, language is in. I'm sure uh, it's be, it'll be hard to guess, but well, maybe not. We'll see. We'll see. The first 
is uh, this one, and I, I can try to pronounce it later, but I'll, I will um, play it for you. Here, here you go. This is the word. Huijaus. Huijaus. Any, any guesses okay. so far? Any, uh, even as to what language it is? I'll play it again. Huijaus. Huijaus. Is it Finnish or Estonian? It is Finnish. Anders. Very good. Finnish. Very okay. good. Very wow. good. Any guesses to what it can mean? I don't think it's easy to to guess if you don't it, know Finnish. For me, it sounds like go in, go out, but <laughs> <laughs> aus. Okay, I understand that. Hinaus, rein, So it sounds a little bit like the if you say in Hungarian "huja manush," which uh, translates into "stupid guy." <laughs> okay. Ooh, okay, I don't know if that's related, but it's interesting because one of the reasons I took. Finnish as a language was to see if there is any connection to hung- Hungarian. Of course, I don't know. They are, are no. supposed to be <laughs> the same language family, but it's very. I, I think they are very different languages anyway. Yeah, the, the vocabulary is very, very different. Yes, yeah. The language structure is very similar. It means scam or fraud. Scam okay. or fraud. Wow. And that links to the next word, which is uh, similar. Here we go. Huijari. 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 So if huijaus is scam, what is huijari? Something. Something related. <laughs> something something fraudulous, that's for sure. Sure. It means charlatan, crook or swindler. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Huijari. And of course, then we have to put it all in a in a sentence and since in Finnish and you will recognize this Andros I'm sure that you also have different cases for the nouns so if you take the word huijaus and put it in a sentence it could sound like this Pelkkää huijausta koko juttu Pelkkää huijausta koko juttu So then it becomes huijausta because you changed a little bit, you make a change to the noun, so it's huijaus, but it becomes You conjugate it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, this means, I won't ask you to, to guess because it's not easy. It means the whole thing is just a scam. Pelkkää huijausta koko juttu. <laughs> the whole thing is just a scam. That's so, so cool. So. <laughs> okay, next time, next time I'm, in fi- I'm in Finland. So that's what it means. All right. So, um, yes. So I thought it would be good to have a f- some finish to finish on. Huh? And yeah, and I, I really love it, especially because after we're done with the recording, I will be doing the annual assembly, uh, general assembly of the Hungarian skeptics. Ooh. And we have a member who's very fond of Finland. He speaks Finnish as well. <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to put him to the test. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That was fascinating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but that also concludes our show. But obviously, we cannot leave without a quote. So, Annika, have you got one for us? Yes. 
This is a German one, but of course also will give you <laughs> the English translation. Oh, I hope you'll you'll start with the German one. I will I will start with the German original. Okay, good, good, good. <laughs> but I want to say who said it first, and that was Wolfgang Pauli, who was an Austrian theoretical physicist and um one of the pioneers of quantum physics. Born 19100 <laughs> and uh, died 1958. And he said, Ich habe nichts dagegen, wenn Sie langsam denken, Herr Doktor, aber ich habe etwas dagegen, wenn Sie rascher publizieren als denken. <laughs> okay. That was a little bit longer than my Finnish sentence. Yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> the German would never be long-winded in any kind of way, shape or form. <laughs> no. No. This was just one word, right? Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That was just one word. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but it translates to, I don't mind your thinking slowly. I mind your publishing faster than you think. Mm. <laughs> okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it happens. It could have um, been um, one of the quotes um, about two years ago, while the publications were coming out like crazy about COVID and all that, mm. like the publishing frenzy. And that's something that goes pretty well with the publish or perish attitude that mm. is often criticized in academia. Mm -hmm. If you don't publish fast enough, if you don't publish enough, then your work is not recognized. Your work is basically nothing. And back then, it was probably not that bad. But Pauli, <laughs> Wolfgang Pauli, was probably a little bit ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, as great minds are usually are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that, Annika. Thank you. Many thanks to both of you for today. Thanks a lot. And my heartfelt thanks to all our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hey do. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Conservatism conservative side <laughs> so, sorry conservative <laughs> <laughs> um auto auto acoustic auto acoustic it's hard to say